So if there were going to be a quiz today, before you leave for your Mother's Day lunch, would you be able to pass the quiz and in one sentence tell me what the classic Christian biblical doctrine of the Trinity is? There won't be such a quiz, lest we be here all day and I make all of you feel bad. No, I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of you would, would pass. And even if you wouldn't pass, you came to the right place, uh, I'll make sure you can pass. Christians believe that there's one true God who always has been God and always will be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the classic Christian doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, indeed, our God is the great triune God. And yet many Christians can't in a sentence or two or three explain the classic Christian doctrine without sounding like they belong to a different religion. And that's probably not a good thing. And so regardless of where you are, I want to help. I want to help you, if you're a Christian, to be able to talk like a Christian. So what we're going to do this morning is talk about the classic Christian reality, our great triune God, so that we might worship Him, so that we might know Him, so that we might be able to defend the faith, because we're called to do that, among other things. And I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 28 to begin. So we're going to look at Matthew 28, because Matthew 28 assumes, I know assuming is dangerous, but Matthew 28 records the words of Jesus and the Great Commission, and It assumes that Christians know something right about the Trinity. Even to be clear and concise, to explain it to a brand new Christian. And so I hope that that we can do that as a result of our study. So Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And as you're finding that passage, we won't be in the book of Acts right now. We're studying the book of Acts. We weren't last week. I was gone speaking at a conference on the Trinity, so it's all fresh in my mind. It's one of the reasons why we're doing this. Um, I was with my brother, as a matter of fact, in Ohio. So those of you who prayed for my brother when the doctors told him they didn't think he was ever going to leave the hospital, not very many months ago, thank you for praying. Uh, I saw him with my own two eyes ride a bicycle 25 miles two days in a row. So, he said, I couldn't take 25 steps not very long ago. So, thank you for praying. Uh, We had a great time together uh, in Ohio talking about our great triune God. And this is one of those messages. um, And I thought it would be helpful to share with you all because it's necessary that we know something about God if we're going to worship Him, if we're going to love Him, if we're going to think rightly about Him. In Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lots of great stuff in there. I just want to point out one great item, and that is this. That text, those words assume that you as a disciple, a disciple means learner, it means pupil, student. And remember, before Christians were called Christians in the book of Acts, they were called disciples. 
Okay, so they're, they're, they belong to Jesus. They're Jesus followers. They're Jesus pupils. So if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a Christian. They go back and forth. That text assumes, Jesus assumes that you as a disciple know enough about the Trinity that you could explain the Trinity to a new disciple. Or a would-be disciple, maybe somebody who's interested, and tell me more about this baptism you're going to do to me. I think lots of people get baptized without ever thinking about it, but it's probably a bad look. Are you baptizing me in the name of the three gods? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? No, that's not what Christians believe. Did you notice in the name of, not the names of? Even built in, it assumes something that in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's why I want to encourage you to be able to at least state the reality, the teaching, the Christian belief of the Trinity. So you don't have to write an academic book about it. You don't have to preach sermons about it. Some of us do that. You don't have to do any of those things. But at least to be able to say to somebody who is a new disciple, you can say to them, there is one true God who's always been God and always will be God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then that person will say, can you explain that to me? And you're going to say, no. <laughs> but I can prove it to you with the Bible, and I can explain to you it's not illogical. We, are, we don't have three gods and three persons. We don't have one God and one person. We have one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you put your hand over your mouth. See, I, I, I don't know a lot more than that, but I can show it to you in the Bible and you can't make this stuff up. One of the reasons I'm a Christian and I'm all the more committed is because nobody could make this stuff up. It would be so much easier to make up a God who is some other kind of God. But when we look at the biblical data, we come to that kind of conclusion. One eternal God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by persons, we don't mean humans. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Trinitarian discipleship is the name of the sermon. Trinitarian discipleship. And what I want to do is help disciple you so that you can understand the Trinity better so that you can be ready to help someone else understand because we're all supposed to be able to help someone else understand. It's assumed in the passage. And so we're going to ask the question again and again and again. We're going to ask the question, how can I learn about the Trinity? Seven times we're going to ask the question, how can I learn about the Trinity? And I'm going to offer seven answers, seven guiding principles. Um, I'm going to try to be a good discipler in helping us think about the basic Christian reality of the Trinity. Guiding principles. Again, if you're used to, what we usually do at Omaha Bible Church, for those of you who are maybe just visiting, we're usually in a book of the Bible, a passage, um, it's pretty easy to follow, um, but we're not today. We're looking at this topic because it's an important topic, so we're going to be all over the place in the Bible. Don't feel intimidated unless you'd like to feel intimidated. Um, don't feel like you have to look up every passage, but I'd certainly invite you to look up some of them or jot them down. Number one, how can I learn about the Trinity? Number one, ask. And what I mean by that is pray. Let's start by the obvious. God wants you to know Him. 
God wants you to know what's true about him, not what's wrong about him. And so what should you do? You should pray. Surely the God who only gives good gifts to his children wants you to say, God, help me to know who you are and who you're not so that I can worship you and love you and know you and tell others about you. I think of that passage that, that, uh, where we have Jesus' words written down in Matthew 7. It's such a good and helpful promise from Jesus. In Matthew 7, verse 11, they'll probably be familiar to lots of you, these words. Jesus says, if you then being evil, he's talking to people who live fallen, broken lives in a fallen, broken world. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and by and large, parents give good gifts to their children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Ask God. No doubt He'll take pleasure in helping you learn who He is in comparison to who He isn't. Another passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago when we talked about motivations for learning about the Trinity, learning about God, uh, is Colossians 1. And in, and in Colossians 1, it's like verses 9 and following. The Apostle Paul is praying for the Christians who are at the city called Colossae. Thus, we have Colossians. And one of the things he prays for them is that, is that they would be increasing in their knowledge of, remember, God praying that they would be growing spiritually. And part of growing spiritually is you've got to be increasing in your knowledge of God. And so it's true. Sometimes knowledge makes people arrogant. The Bible warns against that. But you have to have knowledge if you're going to have worship. John chapter 4, if you're going to really know who God is, you have to know something about Him that's actually true. And so that's a great way to pray. It's a great way to pray for yourself. It's a great way to pray for me. It's a great way for me to pray for you. Uh, so add that to your list. If you don't know how to pray for someone and, you know, you're busy praying for all kinds, you know, pray that their cat who has the sniffles feels better pretty soon or we're, pray for, we pray for lots of things, but surely you can pray for people's spiritual growth and maturity that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. If you want to know more about our great Christian God, the triune God, the one true and living God. Pray for knowledge, knowledge about God. Now let's move to another one of these questions, guiding principle. Some of you, rumor has it, some of you came for the controversy. Can I see a show? Of, I don't want to see a show of hands. Um, we will talk about controversial things today too. So hang in there um, because not all who profess to be Christians promote the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And it's actually a huge debate being debated right now by authors you may even otherwise enjoy. We'll get to that. But some of you looked like you needed a little pep talk. So I'm appealing to your lower passions, I guess, for controversy. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But we want to know what's true about God so that we can contend for the faith. We'll get to that. A second guiding principle. How can I know more about the Trinity? How can I learn about the Trinity? Number two is... Be realistic. Be realistic. There are three really important words in the Bible that help us with this. They're found in Genesis 1. I think it's in verse 27. You've heard them before. God created man. Then it goes on to explain what, what is meant. Male and female, he created them. God is the creator. Remember those three words. 
God is the creator, therefore we are the creatures. And I know this is super basic, but it's important to remember there's a distinction between the creator and his creatures. So in theology, oftentimes it's vivid. I probably have done this before, but even if I have, I'll do it again. It's good to even draw a line. It's a good visual for me. Draw a line and above the line, we have God, the creator. Below the line, you could write the words, everything else. Right? He's the creator. He's the creator sovereign who knows all things. He's all the omnis. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's all, he's all wise, he's all knowing, he's all powerful, he's the creator. Yes, it's true, he made us in his image, so we're somewhat like him, but different category. Radically different category. So what we need to remember is, we're never going to know God the way God knows God, who's infinite in wisdom all-knowing creator. He's eternal. He's above the line. Psalm 90 verse 20 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's in the context actually of him creating things. He made the, the mountains and all of these things below the line. But from everlasting to everlasting, he's God. And the psalmist worships him because of this. So be reasonable, be realistic about what you're going to know and not, go, not, not know. The infinite creator, sovereign, makes himself known to us, but only in a way we can understand as creatures. William Ames, the classic Christian theologian, said this in one sentence. I like it when Puritans can speak in one sentence that's not like seven pages long. God, as he is in himself, cannot be understood by any save himself or himself. It's pretty helpful. It's why in Christian theology, the study of God, remember we're all theologians because we all have an opinion about God. We just want to be good theologians, Christian ones. But we talk about condescension. And every time I feel like I have to qualify it, because when I say condescending, it means I'm complaining because someone was speaking down to me. Well, in theology, we use condescension to make sure we understand the line. Creator, creature, God is gracious and merciful and kind, and he stoops down and condescends and makes himself known to us truly in ways we can understand, but not as the creator understands himself. That's humbling. I hope it's worship-inducing. I hope it's awe-inspiring. It causes us to be reasonable. Well, I know some of you probably came for the controversy. Some of you came for the, for the big words. So, and we're talking about God. We've got to start using big words because we're trying to explain the one that we could never know comprehensively. And so theologians have used two important words when it comes to understanding God. They would say, we don't understand God univocally. Try that at lunch today. Univocally. Instead, they use another category in word, and it's the word analogical or analogically. Think of analogy. God is above the line. He speaks to us in ways we can understand. He speaks 
analogically, like an analogy. It's not one-to-one. Ever thought about this stuff before? It's actually kind of basic Christian theology because we're talking about God. And I'm afraid sometimes the thought of God rests too inconsequentially upon our minds. It's no wonder we don't want to worship and live for His honor and glory. He's just like us, the big guy upstairs. Yeah, he's upstairs all right. (laughs) Creator, sovereign, infinite, totally, radically unique. Matthew Barrett, who was here talking about the Trinity in the fall, says, classic theism rejects univocal knowledge of an infinite, incomprehensible God. That's right. That's good. That's helpful. I've got a question for you. Another question. I'm filled with questions. When we get to heaven one day, when we're glorified, however you want to word it, will we know everything about God then? Will we know God as God knows himself? I hope we've learned enough already to go, I I don't think so. He's the infinite creator sovereign, right? From everlasting to everlasting, the all-wise, all-knowing one. Uh, I look forward to knowing more than I know now, right? I I, I see in part now and later it's going to be fully, but I'm always going to be below the line. Worshiping because he's unique and distinct as the one and only creator sovereign. I can't figure out why people are put off by this kind of stuff. Imagine if God could be managed and if God were just like you. No. We're we're not going to go to heaven and become God. We're going to be glorified, but we're not going to become God and He will always be interesting to you. Always. Always worship inspiring. You won't be bored in heaven once you get your wings that you're not going to get. He will always be the infinite, all-knowing, amazing, astounding, staggering to the mind one who is holy, holy, holy. Makes me want to worship. Makes me want to worship. Now, let's go to number three. How can I know the triune God? At least to the degree that I can know the triune God. See, we're learning to qualify things. How can I better know who God is? Number three, read the Bible. Read the Bible. And we're going to do a good old-fashioned Bible study together. We're going to roll our sleeves up and look at Bible texts and see that the doctrine, the teaching, the official teaching, that's what doctrine means. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical. I was raised in a Christian tradition that recited things that were Trinitarian every Sunday. I didn't learn the gospel. I'll take the blame, but I didn't learn the gospel. And I learned a lot of other things that I'm glad I've been able to unlearn. But one thing I learned was Trinitarianism. To the point where then I became a Christian later in life and I had to wonder, is the Trinity biblical? I wasn't sure. I had to do what we're going to do right now. Look up Bible verses. And we're going to look up Bible verses and we're going to be able to put them in different categories. For some of you, you could do this off the the top of your head. 
Great. It'll be review. For others of you, you'll say, oh, this is helpful for me to, to, to think it through. Category number one is going to be there's only one God. We're going to look up some Bible verses that talk about there's only one God. We'll look at the Psalms. We'll look at First Timothy. We'll look at Romans 16. We'll look at Deuteronomy 6. So one God category number one, then in another column, if you will, or category, however you want to do it, uh, we're going to, we're going to look at passages that have explicitly stated declarations, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Okay, that's going to be another category. And then we're going to look at another category and we're going to see that they are distinct. They're distinct. It's not just one God, one person who wears different masks or who starts as the Father and becomes the Son and becomes the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to see all three at the same time in a certain passage. You know what passage that is? It's the what of Jesus. It's at the baptism of Jesus. That's the t- passage we'll go to for that. Okay, hope you're ready. I hope you, my brother sometimes, since I was just with him for a few days, he says, all right, get out your WD-40. We're going to go fast through the Bible, so it has to be all lubricated and ready to go. So here we go. Read the Bible. We need a category for one God. And maybe before we actually, well, if you will, Psalm 86, Romans 16, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6, 4. You can look up any of them or all of them or none of them. But Psalm 86, Romans 16, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Deuteronomy 6, 4. But as you're turning to maybe one of those passages, category number one, one God. But actually, if I stepped back, I'd go back to that Great Commission passage. Baptize them in the name of, this is Christian Christianity, ABCs, one, two, threes, the first thing that happens to you. You get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's look at the one God, the name, if you will. And it says in Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do wondrous deeds, you alone are God. Pretty straightforward. There it is. There's only one God. Christianity is monotheistic. There's only one God. Romans 16, 27, it's in the category of praise. Isn't that interesting? Psalm 86 is in the category of praise. Romans 16 is in the category of praise. Talk about practical. The most practical thing ever would be you knowing who God is so that you respond to him correctly. Practical. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the only king, the king of kings and lord of lords, which is not even a true statement. There are many kings. There are many sovereigns, kings and queens. But there's a good reason he's saying it that way and capitalizing it in our translation. He's the only sovereign. He's the only true ultimate king because he and he alone is above the line. He's above all of them. Different category altogether. Deuteronomy 6.4, which is probably where we should have started because it is the classic text from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And we know that he doesn't just mean one in purpose because he goes on to say, love him with all of your faculties. That's why I said last time, a couple of weeks ago, we don't split our love 330,000 different ways or three ways or two ways or a hundred ways. There's only one God, so he deserves all of our 
love. Category number one, there's only one God. With me so far? Hope so. Now we move into the next category, and that is the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Ephesians 1, John chapter 8, and Acts chapter 5. Those are the three texts we're going to go to. I've been doing this a long time by now, uh, and so I'm not going to expect you to, to be able to do the same thing. But I was encouraged, and I have a bad memory by and large, I was encouraged that I didn't have to pull out any theology books to find the passages. Um, it's not a requirement for getting into heaven or godliness or anything like that. But I do think it's helpful if we at least know where the Bible teaches these things. So that maybe is just a challenge for you. Um, can you at least go to Matthew 28 and write in the margin the relevant passages? That would be fine. Um, to be able to make your way around the Bible, if this is basic to Christianity, let's be able to understand and maybe be able to find the passages. The Father is God. How about Ephesians 1.3? It's super obvious. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Super straightforward. Then John chapter 8. Jesus is divine as well. John 8.56. Oh, this is a spicy one. This is, this is major controversy swirling. G- Jesus isn't afraid of the controversy if he could tell what's true about himself. John 8, 56. Your father, a- your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. The great I am statement, right, from the Old Testament. God, tell us what your name is. And God, in the perfect way, dodges the question to teach them something, right? I'm the great I am. I'm the great self-existent one. I'm the one who's like unlike any other. I'm the great I am. And now Jesus says, before Abraham was... And Abraham is long dead and gone. And Jesus, the incarnate one, is living way after that. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. It's a claim to deity. And we know it's a claim to deity based upon what the Jews are going to do. It says in verse 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Blasphemous. That's, that's a lie. Unless it's true. They don't think it's true, so they want to have him executed. Okay, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God. What's the, what's the classic, classic text? There are multiple ones. I guess, what's my classic text? I invite you all to read my mind. <laughs> the one I always go to because it seems to be so clear is Acts 5. Uh, and I was hopeful because we were just in Acts 5. So Acts 5 is a really good one because Ananias and Sapphira do what? They lie... And they die. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And then the apostles go on to say, you lied to God. So, interchangeable. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then if we drop down into verse 4, at the end there, last sentence, you have not lied to men, but to God. You don't lie to an it. You might, but we have special classes for you. (laughs) You lie to a person. He's God. He's God. 
So, one God, and that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, is the Father the Son? No. Is the Son the Spirit? No. Is the Spirit the Father? No. And any other kind of What word am I looking for? Uh, Yeah, any other kind of combination. Thank you. The answer is no, no, no. There's distinction. So here's our final category that we'll do, and then we're going to move on. And that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not different in name only. There is distinction. There is distinction, and I mentioned it earlier, and lots of you guessed. The baptism of Jesus is the go-to place. And it's Matthew 3, Matthew 3.16. There's lots of important 3.16s in the Bible. I use that as a crutch. This is one of those important 3.16s. All three members, there at the same time. Later we're going to talk about modalism, so modalism isn't true. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet there are distinctions. Comprehending that is above my pay grade. It's above anyone who is below the line's pay grade. Matthew 3.16, after being baptized, Jesus, there's the Son, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Verse 17, and behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved Son. So a father would say that, and it is the father saying that, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So the Bible, the Bible, our book, the Christian book, leads us to believe that there is only one God and He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me explain that to you. No, this is where I put my hand over my mouth. I I actually can't explain it to you. It's not a logical contradiction because we're not saying three gods and three persons. We're not saying one God and three persons. We're saying one God three persons, but we do push the mystery button, which I just want to remind you, I've said this before, but I'll remind you again, is actually an important button in the history of Christianity. I realize lots of people use it as a cop-out, right? There's clear things in the Bible and people are like, well, I don't know. It's just a mystery to me. We'll find out when we get to heaven someday. And those are the kind of people that don't like Omaha Bible Church. (laughs) Okay. You're here, you know, Bible toting, whether it's on your phone or under your arm. And and I checked when I drove in, it says Omaha Bible Church. So we think lots of things that are written off as mysteries aren't mysteries because the Bible, you know, isn't alphabet soup. um, And it's understandable. There's lots of things we can understand. So we want to roll our sleeves up and we want to understand things. And that's good and virtuous to be increasing in the knowledge of God from Holy Scripture. But I just want to remind you that in the long line of Christianity before us and present really, really, really smart people who are good and faithful Christians, there's been a button. Not a literal button, but there's been a button called mystery and you push the button. It's good to push that button to say, you know what, I've done as much work as I can, but now it's time for me to push my chair away from the desk and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one like him. There's no good illustration. There's no good analogy. 
One God, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I look forward to knowing more in this life. I look forward to knowing more in heaven. But it will always be somewhat of a mystery to me. Not as in, ooh, mystery, scary movie, but as in, I don't comprehend this. I don't comprehend. So let's remember that. All right, good job, guys. Old-fashioned, basic, roll-our-sleeves-up Bible study, creating categories. It's actually really important. The Bible is distinctly Trinitarian. We can draw conclusions based upon that. But here is another question I have for you. So many questions. But is the Bible enough? I see some of you going, yeah. Well, I'd better say yes or I'm going to get fired. I won't even make it to my house without probably getting phone calls and texts letting me know that you will no longer be needing my services. (laughs) Of course the Bible is enough, right? The Bible and the Bible alone is our special revelation, okay? The inspired text. There aren't other new inspired texts. It is the Bible. We believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a classic, traditional Protestant from the Reformation tradition. I believe in sola scriptura. Scripture alone is special revelation from God. The Bible is enough. I'm not going to use the word but. My notes might even say but. I'm just going to use the word Yet. Yet you need to know that heretic after heretic after heretic after heretic after heretic, and I could go on, has claimed the Bible as their book and denied Trinitarianism. By definition, heretics are not just people you don't like. (laughs) They're people who profess to be Christians but they deny a major Christian doctrine like the doctrine of God or salvation, in this case, the doctrine of God. And so let's move to number four on our list. That's the lead in. Number four, how can I learn about the Trinity? Read the Bible with the church. Read the Bible with the church. as my friend Scott Clark likes to say. The church that exists now, this local congregation, but beyond this, the the church on planet Earth now, but also the church that's existed now for thousands of years? That's what I mean, and we'll unpack some of that. This is why when people talk in, in certain special terms, they say, we believe in sola scriptura. Scripture alone is God, God's special revelation. But thinking Christians say that's different than solo scriptura. I think it's a helpful kind of designation. We are going to pay attention to how the Spirit of God has worked in the past to lead His church, men, women, boys and girls. Some of them have been martyred over their theological positions. And we're going to pay attention to how the Holy Spirit used the Bible in their lives before five minutes ago when I became a Christian. So just so you know, in the Protestant Reformed tradition, sola scriptura doesn't mean you and your Bible and everything will be fine. Okay? They mean it and it alone is special revelation, which is really important. 
but we should pay attention to history. And so read the Bible, but don't be a functional Holy Spirit denier. The Bible, the Bible is given to us by the Holy Spirit, but remember the Holy Spirit has been working for a long time now through the life of the church. Think of it in these terms. In Jude 1-3, only one chapter in Jude, but I have a Bible program, so I have to put in Jude 1-3. We're to contend for the faith, right? The objective body of Christian doctrine. That was, lots of you can finish the sentence, once and for all, delivered to the saints in Pat's life. No. Five minutes ago. No. When we arrived on the scene. No. So even Jude 1-3 assumes the, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So let's just, you know, kind of round uh, this whole thing and say, so that was a couple thousand years ago. So a couple thousand years ago, if the letter of Jude is written to those people, guess what? The faith had already been delivered. And it's to be contended for. So we would be committing the, the height of arrogance to say, well, they didn't know anything, but I've got it all figured out. That's what C.S. Lewis calls, I wish I had a good British imitation accent, but I don't, chronological snobbery. I like that. Chronological snobbery. To ignore the past and history, pretending like I'm the only one who could never figure anything out. It's reinventing the wheel and it's going to be square. We have to remember there's lots of water under the bridge to the point where even people have lost their lives over it. Real blood, sweat, and tears over these things. And so we want to read the Bible with the church and we want to pay attention to what people have concluded that have come before us because once and for all delivered isn't in Pat's lifetime. It was a long time ago and now I'm supposed to do my part in contending for it. So you ask, how do we do this? How do we read the Bible with the church? Well, one way is by reading history, obviously. Uh, historical theology, they call it. When I was in seminary, I had friends who would come out of historical theology class, and they would say, hysterical theology is what that was. Well, sometimes it is hysterical, just how people get things so crazy and so wrong. But one good thing about studying it is then maybe you don't have to commit the same same mistakes. But maybe we could put a finer point on it. One way we can read the Bible with the church, trying to figure out the meaning of the Bible. We don't need a new Bible. The Bible is final, special revelation. But the meaning of the Bible, one way we can figure it out, read the Bible with the church, is by paying attention to confessions, creeds, catechisms. And sometimes those are dirty words to you if you grew up in a church that maybe didn't believe what those confessions said. But if you read them, by definition, a confession means agreement. A good historic confession is what the broad, great consensus of what Christians believed before Pat. It's what they agreed to. So confessions are actually helpful. Now, please, just so you don't misunderstand, no Sane Protestant Christian, let's just put it that way, thinks that that confession is inspired. The Bible and the Bible alone is inspired. A confession is men and women and their families writing down what they think the Bible means by what it says. Okay? 
The heretics use the Bible to deny the Trinity. The Christians get together and agree one eternal God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we think the Bible means by what it says. The Bible never says it exactly like that. You see how a confession could be good. It means agreement. Maybe this helps too. For example, the Westminster Confession, coming out of the Reformation, lots of people have Bibles. They're trying to figure out what they should keep and what they should get rid of. Um, now that we need to understand the gospel right, counter Rome. So the Westminster Confession, hundreds of pastors and lay people over the course of numerous years fight. Oh, it's a friendly fight. But what do they do? They assemble and they have to argue over what the Bible means by what it says so that when they're all done fighting collegially, is that the right word? They can say, this is what we all agree to. Oh, this person had this millennial view. This person had a different millennial view. We had different takes on different things because there really were different takes. But at the end of the day, we all can confess this. And it's written down. Pretty helpful. And the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which I would affirm, because I believe in believer's baptism, is essentially the same apart from those kinds of differences. So, I don't think any confession is inspired. But I want to read the Bible with other Christians who've gone before me because I don't think the Holy Spirit just showed up with me or with my favorite celebrity pastor. Okay? So, maybe maybe let me be let me be antagonistic about it for a second. I'm more likely to believe hundreds and hundreds. Oh, now that we've had these for hundreds of years, hundreds of thousands of Christians in their agreement on the meaning of a text, I'm, they might be wrong, they might be all wrong, but I'm far more likely to agree with their understanding of the Bible than I am with yours. Think about it. Or your favorite celebrity pastor. Hundreds of thousands of Christians by now have said, we think this is what the Bible means by what it says regarding the Trinity. I would be super arrogant to say, I'm going to pretend like they didn't agree on anything. You say, What's, what if the confession is wrong? Definitely could be wrong. Definitely could be. I'm still more likely to agree with all those people than just one other person who's making up weird doctrines. But even if they are wrong, how about this? We'll move on here in just a second. But you look like you're enjoying yourself. What if they're wrong? Because they can be wrong. Everybody errors except God. Let's not start over from scratch. Let me illustrate. January 28th, 1986. The space shuttle Challenger broke apart 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members aboard. It was the first fatal accident involving an American spacecraft in flight. That was particularly near and dear to my high school heart. I graduated in 87 because one of our teachers was one of the finalists to go on the space shuttle. 
Instead, it was a teacher by the name, if I recall correctly, named Christy McAuliffe, and she lost her life. And you say, why are you bringing that up? Well, I imagined that that great tragedy led to people losing their jobs. But what they didn't do, what NASA didn't do and all the different people, what they didn't do most assuredly is start over from scratch. They didn't, hire, they didn't fire all of the engineers, burn all of the research, and hire a bunch of English professors to get it right. If you're an English professor, I'm sorry. I was this close to having a double major. I have a minor in English, so calm down. I, I, I like English people. <laughs> but my point, hopefully, is made clearly, Right? Let, let, let's use the traction. We, we, we had a lot of things right. And so let's correct the failures. But we're not just going to start over. That would just be crazy. I had to use that illustration with a man one time because he fancied himself a biblicist. And generally speaking in history, a biblicist is somebody who says, I've got it right and I don't need to pay attention to any confessions. It's usually not a good look. And he fancied himself as a biblicist. But I knew he had, I think, a degree in... Physics, some kind of hard science. And so I shared the illustration with him and he loved it. Because he didn't like English majors <laughs> or professors. So I didn't tell him I have a minor in English. <laughs> but you get the idea. It's where they're expert. So let's pay attention to history. As we try to understand the meaning of the Bible, it would be crazy to try to reinvent things. Let's learn from the past. Okay, number five. We're doing seven of these. I'd better hurry up. How can I learn about the Trinity? Be conservative. Be conservative. And this relates to number four, but I needed to come up with another one to give you a little bit of a break. So be conservative. And I don't mean about politics. But I mean it in that, in light of Jude 1, 3 cents again. Once and for all delivered to the saints. A lot of men and women and boys and girls have gone through a lot to come to some agreement. We probably need to be slow to just with one fail swoop say, it's all garbage. Don't tear down that fence unless you know why the fence is there and if it's necessary to keep it there. I was trying to explain social conservatism as an idea to one of my younger sons the other day. And I said, we're, we're in the turning lane on Dodge, 180th and Dodge, and we're looking right at the sign that says they're building a new Porsche dealer. I might even, maybe my kids could wash windows or something. I, I don't, I don't plan to be able to ever buy a car there, but how cool. I live close to a Porsche dealer. Anyway, I digress. But I knew my son would be interested. And I said, Hey, it's the Porsche dealer. That's going to be cool and see those cars there. And I said, but look at that fence down there on Dodge Street. That ugly, who knows who put it there, why they put it there, ugly chain link fence. How stupid. You know, the first thing I would do is, if I were building the Porsche dealer, I'd tear down that ugly chain link fence. And I said, you know what? But it doesn't belong to them. And maybe it's there for a reason. And uh, maybe you should do a little research if you're the owner of the Porsche dealer as to what you can and cannot do and what good purpose it serves. You get the idea. 
Sometimes fences should be torn down. But sometimes they're there for a reason. We should pay attention and say, you know what? Maybe those Christians before us, let's get back to theology. Maybe they said things a certain way on purpose to serve a good purpose. Maybe not. But let's be slow to just wipe it all down because we don't understand it. I'm going to use an example of the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 because I've referenced it. And I just want you to engage your mind with me a little bit and, and, and pretend like maybe this is a different context and think about what you'd like to take out. Chapter 2, God and the Holy Trinity. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. So far so good? We, we can do the gladiator thing? I'd say pretty good. <laughs> whose subsistence, when was the last time you used used the word subsistence as if ever? Whose subsistence, uh, I'm going to look that up in a thesaurus. Oh, it means person. I'd like to change it to person. But maybe not. Because oftentimes today, at least, when people hear person, they think human, and that's not what they meant. Maybe it would be better to be conservative and just leave it there so we could do a little bit of research, even though, you know, it's kind of a lot of work. Whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Now, I realize we just talked about a lot of that stuff, but otherwise, in a different setting, I might say, well, I think he could be comprehended. No, I'm going to leave that there because it's for good reason. Above the line. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Hmm, Would you really like to describe God as without passions? Seems pretty passionate to me at times. And yet careful theologians for now thousand plus years, let's just say, have said things like that. God doesn't have passions. Why would they say that? Because if God fluctuates emotionally, then he changes. And if he changes, when is he better? When he's angry or happy? And I thought the Bible taught God doesn't change. It gets pretty interesting. Makes you say, I better learn a thing or two before I just get out my black marker and get rid of things. Maybe I'd prefer a God who doesn't change in a stable. And, but then theologians have to be careful and they say, but we have to explain these kinds of things because he does have wrath and he does have pleasure. And so they use words, big words, ready for another big word? Anthropopathic. And no, I wasn't speaking in tongues anthropopathic, this is Matthew Barrett, refers to the use of human emotions and passions to describe God. This language is not meant to be taken literally, but is figurative. Because if God fluctuates emotionally, then he changes. And if he changes, when is he better? So it's not just philosophical mumbo-jumbo. It's the Bible has a lot of data. There are all of these different things that are taught about God and it's not alphabet soup, so we better categorize and say, you know what? We're going to introduce some big words to understand the distinctions because the Bible doesn't just contradict itself. Theology is interesting. But this isn't anything new. This is just old school stuff. Oh, maybe let's do one more. Let's pick on the confession just a little bit more. Uh, He's without parts. 
Well, but wait a second. Isn't God all knowing? Doesn't he have attributes? He's all knowing. He's all wise. He's all powerful. Sounds like parts. But careful Christian theologians now for thousands of years, he doesn't have parts. In fact, they like to use other designations. His perfections. How do they come up with that kind of stuff? Because the Bible says things like, God is loving. No, it doesn't. What does it say? God is love. So we start using special vocabulary to talk about God's not a conglomeration of parts. Francis Turretin said, he came after Calvin, simplicity in respect to his essence, but trinity in respect to persons. Again, I'll quote Matthew Barrett and then we'll get things moving on. God is not made up of parts. He is not composite or a compounded being. He is his attributes. His essence is his attributes and his attributes, his essence. All that is in God simply is God. Each person of the Trinity... I'm going to stop there because it gets even more complicated. (laughs) Again, you might think, this is a whole lot of learning. We're trying to take the biblical data and not have contradiction or heresy. And so we pay attention to how other people who've gone before us have done it. We read the Bible, but we read the Bible with the church. Not only that, we're conservative about getting rid of even the vocabulary. How have they spoken about these things before? Maybe we should pay attention as to why they spoke about these things the way they did before. Oh, I've got, I got, I've got more where this came from. Um, number six, we're doing six and seven. How can I learn about the Trinity? Next guiding principle. Know the heretics. Know the heretics. There's a helpful little book that I like to recommend. We have in our bookstore by Justin Holcomb called Know the Heretics. Do we have a class on Know the Heretics one time? Was that the one that was called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? I don't remember, but it's a, what a good, what a good name. So what do we want to do? We want to say, okay, what did Arius teach? Arianism teaches that Jesus is God's greatest created being. Not worthy of worship, not worthy of glory, not one in essence with the Father and Spirit. That's Arianism. Good to know that. Arianism taught that the Son is eternally submitting to the Father. Arianism is a heresy. It's good to know that so I don't have to make the same kinds of mistakes. Maybe we'll talk more about that. Modalism is another one where God has different modes. T.D. Jakes who's on TV. He's a heretic, classically speaking, from a Christian perspective because he's a modalist. Father becomes the son, becomes the spirit kind of thing. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's outside of the boundary of classic Christianity. That's modalism. You all have an assignment. You need to go home. Please don't do it now. You need to go home and look up YouTube, get on YouTube and search modalism, Lutheran satire, right? I can almost count on Ed Pilly to do this almost every time he sees me. So, and next week he'll come back and if I say, God was the Father, God became the Son, God became the Holy Spirit, or if I do the egg analogy or water analogy, you're going to say, that's modalism, Patrick. Okay, that's what you're going to do, right? It's like the three-leaf clover. That's modalism, Patrick. It's It's an ancient heresy. 
But we commit ancient heresies all the time because we're not familiar with the foes of Christianity. And all we'd have to do is just a little bit of work. So keep that in mind. Now I can't get that off my mind. We have things like the Nicene Creed to defend against Arianism. That Jesus is very God of very God. He's not some sort of submissive one who's second level. No, worthy of worship. Remember Jesus, when they worshipped him, he didn't say, no, don't do that. Right? Arius is right. No, he accepted the worship because he's of the same worthiness of glory because he's divine. And sometimes you're used to this stuff because maybe in some Christian traditions, they recite these things every week. Sometimes without thinking about them, that's unfortunate, but they're actually true. He is very God of very God, begotten, not made. This is like classic universal Christianity. And I have critiques of some of those things and practices, but sometimes we need to make up for them by doing a sermon like this. Nicaea is right. Nicene Creed is right. Arianism is a heresy. And people are promoting such heresies even today in Bible churches, in evangelical circles. And so I just want you to be aware. The Son is not subordinate in eternity. So those of you who did come for the controversy, there's a current form of heresy that dabbles in Arianism. I think it dabbles in modalism as well. Dabbles in tritheism. It's called EFS. EFS, the eternal functional subordination of the son. Mouthful. And I don't like to name names, but one of my callings as a pastor, according to Titus, is to teach sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. So I need to be a good pastor today and warn you and help you. I also, as a pastor, pastor means shepherd, am supposed to feed, but also protect. And so EFS is dabbling with, I'm trying to put it nicely, ancient heresy, anti-God heresy that's come around before. So eternal functional subordination. It means in eternity, not in the incarnation when Jesus comes here, but in eternity, the Son is under the Father. He is submissive. He has a lesser glory. He's subordinate. That's old school-wise, if we pay attention to the last couple thousand years or so, at least since Nicaea, that's heresy. We don't want to say things like that. Bruce Ware teaches such things. We've had him here at the church. We've carried his books. I've had dinner with him and meals with him. Kind man, Bruce Ware, has dug his heels on this. Owen Strand, his son-in-law, looks like Strachan, but it's pronounced Strand. Some of you might like him for his socially conservative books is an EFSer. Wayne Grudem, who we've benefited so much from in evangelicalism, is dug his heels in on EFS. It's not good. It is not good at all. Listen, listen to some of the statements. The Father stands above the Son. And He's not talking about in the Incarnation. In eternity. The Father stands above the Son. The Father has absolute and uncontested supremacy including authority over the Son and the Spirit. That's ancient heresy. The Father stands above the Son in eternity, heresy, and is, and I quote, supreme within the Godhead. That's classic 
anti-Trinitarian heresy. And you got to know it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. And yet we platform them at our big conferences and aren't these great guys because they're conservative like us and they're not woke or whatever it is. Which is more important, being a social conservative or the doctrine of God? I think you know the answer. These are, these are serious matters. And you might be wondering, where did this come from? Well, I won't get this all right, but off the top of my head, in 19, you'll find this interesting. In 1987, something called the Danvers Statement came about. Uh, Danvers, Massachusetts. I wasn't there. I was a senior in high school. Um, I've been, I've been to Danvers, but I wasn't there in 87. So we have conservative Christians getting together, theologians getting together to combat evangelical feminism. And they created what's called the Danvers Statement. And out of the Danvers Statement, and I had mentors who were there, well-meaning, godly people even, and, and to combat, combat evangelical feminism, we have the Danvers Statement. And then we have a book that comes out that really covers a big part of it. Thousands of seminary students have read this book. I had to read this book. There's some good things in the book. Uh, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. And then there's a whole ministry, biblical manhood and womanhood. And their slam dunk argument was, women submit to men because in eternity the son submitted to the father. How do you argue with that? The way you argue with that is, that's an ancient Christological heresy. Surely we can find other ways to promote gender distinctions. Surely we can go to other Bible verses without committing heresy. So I've been wrong. I believe the wrong things. I've promoted the wrong things. I've been mentored by those who've been wrong. But it would be a good idea now for those, and many have, to say, you know what, we were wrong. Instead of having the Fonzie moment on happy days, because he's so consumed with his own pride, he says, I was and he can't say it. Won't be the last time that we're wrong about things. But it actually is really important that we have our doctrine of God better so that we don't try to use the doctrine of God for our current agenda. And it's definitely what we did in evangelicalism. Listen to what one Lutheran outsider says who would agree with Protestants, who would agree with the Reformed and all the thousands of years about the doctrine of God and Trinitarianism. We're supposed to be on the same side. This is a conservative Lutheran. If we are going to use any accepted standards of what constitutes heresy by the universal church, and he's reaching back to Nicaea, the eternal subordination perspective is not orthodoxy, it is heresy. And I think Jordan B. Cooper is exactly right in saying that. We've had to get rid of our premarital book that we're using, and we had to find an old premarital book that teaches classic theism. And there was an old, funny-looking book. The cover looked like it was from the 70s. Chris Peterson brought it in, blew the dust off of it by a guy you may have heard of before named R.C. Sproul. And you know, he quotes some psychologists in there so that we, we knew it was bad. He quotes some common sense and sense things in there that are good, but he's a classic Trinitarian, classic theist, so he doesn't promote heresy to try to get wives to do what people think they're supposed to do. 
So I realize I'm in the waters of controversy here, but it really is a good learning moment for us. Thankfully, the tide is turning, but some of those, the ones I just named, are digging their heels in. Let me say this. One, one more thing about that and we'll move on. I've learned so much about the classic Christian doctrine, though, in the last several months. I've learned so much about the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. And it is a good example of how sometimes error actually helps us because we have to scramble and figure out what we believe. Here's how it happened. I lied a second ago and said we're moving on. The EFSers went to incarnation texts, redemption texts. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus humbles himself and is submissive. True, true. But then they took incarnation category texts and brought it into eternity within the essence of the triune God. Heresy, heresy, heresy. So it's in the Bible, but you have to have a category for incarnation relating to the world, redemption, and God in His very essence. Lest you deny things like very God of very God, begotten, not made. Those are well-worn paths and they're right paths. Okay? It's important. And let me just end, end that point on this. In Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians 2, you know the passage, we're to be humble because Jesus is humble, right? And, and though he existed in the form of God, he humbled himself and took on human flesh. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm getting it really close and capturing the idea I know I am. So he's God and he humbles himself and becomes a human being. See? Essence, incarnation, those probably aren't perfect categories, but you get the idea. And when you read Philippians 2, you get the sense that this is extraordinary. Isn't it amazing that this happened? Well, it's not very amazing if he's been submitting all along. And he's been humble all along. As a second rate, if you will. Oh, you know what? And then he humbled himself and became a human being. You see, you see how it clicks and makes sense. Oh, the, the very God of very God one. He humbles himself and becomes one of us. Amazing. See, it makes sense. Okay, finally, let's end on this. Number seven, how can I learn more about the Trinity? Read good books. Read good books starting with the confessions. Read the confession. Struggle with what do they mean by subsistence. Maybe it's worth learning about. Read the confessions. What have men and women and boys and girls for now hundreds of years, then reaching back even thousands of years, what have they concluded about these things? Read those kind of books. It's, it's why every Wednesday night, Todd Swift teaches a class on the 1689 confession. It's why every elder meeting, every monthly elder meeting, we take turns reading another chapter from the 1689 confession. And so, because let's remember, let's remember how other Christians talked. So, so, so we can try to color within the lines. Let's not be creative here. We're talking about the once and for all delivered to the saints faith. Let's keep it fresh in our minds. So read good books, starting with the confession. You can have a free one in the bookstore if you'd like it. And then I would say read old books. Classic Turretin kind of books. 
But I would also say read new books that talk about the old books and shine the light on the current heresies. If you pick up Matthew Barrett's book, Simply Trinity, uh, now you know why it's Simply Trinity too. Simply Trinity. And you start looking at the footnotes, you're like, oh my. I didn't realize Bruce Ware taught those things. Fascinating. Final, final, final quotation from me and then we'll be done. Here we go. You're going to leave today thinking, my head is swimming. My, I, I don't know. Lots of you are going to think different things. What's the takeaway? Help me, pastor. How do I understand the Trinity? Well, a man named Gregory of Nanzianzus, hard to say, fourth century, put it this way. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner, sooner do I distinguish them, the three, than I am carried back to the one. I think Gregory has a good perspective on these things. Let me put it in my words. When you think about the one, it's time to think about the three. And when you think about the three, it's time to think about the one. And you say, but how does all that work? Well, I'll say to you what one lecturer said so profoundly. Once you've got that figured out, put your hand over your mouth. Put your hand over your mouth. And maybe take your hand down and say, blessed be the God, and you get the idea. Hope this is helpful. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for churches around the world. Thank you for men and women and boys and girls who have been earnestly contending before us. Help us to acknowledge where we are wrong, where we've been wrong. Lord, thank you that we don't have to have perfect theology to go to heaven. But we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who made himself for us, the sin bearer, that we could have our sins forgiven, that Jesus atoned for our sins, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus came here so that we could know who God truly is. Help us to stand in that long line of those who've gone before us who are not contentious but are willing to contend for the faith even if it costs us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.